Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. And this morning I want to talk to you about what it means to be fully devoted. How many of you um, made New Year's resolutions this year? It doesn't matter. Don't raise your hands. Because my next question is, how many of you have already cast off your New Year's resolutions? Yeah. If you'll stop making them, you won't have to worry about casting them off. You know, uh, I'm all about New Year's resolutions, so don't, don't, don't let me deter you if you like them. Let, let me ask you this. How many New Year's resolutions could best be characterized for you? The things you wrote down, the things that you most want to accomplish this year that you would say, I'm going to give 42% of my life to this. I mean, I'm just going, I'm going to give it all, 42% of my life. It's just going to be given all to that. You don't make resolutions that way, do you? Why not? Because half-hearted resolutions are worthless, aren't they? They're worthless, aren't they? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I, I want to talk to you about living fully devoted. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The Word of God says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of His Word today. I want to talk to you this morning about how Christ followers cultivate a life of full devotion because Jesus has loved us. How Christ followers cultivate a life of full devotion because Jesus has loved us. And I want you to see this Jesus-centered devotion in what I'm calling two stages. Two stages. The first stage that we see here is just simply a full devotion, a full devotion. Now, if you write notes down, take that word full and make it all caps in your notes, all caps for emphasis. Circle it, underline it, highlight it, whatever you need to do, just so you won't forget it. Let me bring us up to speed with where we are in the gospel narrative at this point. In the second chapter of the book of Acts, Here's what's just happened. Jesus, uh, briefly, about six weeks prior, has been crucified. He um, has been put in the grave three days later. He rose from the dead. And about 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. Now, when Luke, the writer of Acts, finishes his gospel account, he finishes it with the appearance of Jesus. And he picks up his historical narrative, the book of Acts, with that same position. So Jesus is with his disciples in Acts 1.8. He gives them what we've come to qualify as the Great Commission. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And then it tells us that he ascends into heaven and his disciples go back into the upper room to wait until they've been clothed with power from on high. In other words, the Spirit of God is the the third person of the Trinity has always been present, but now we enter into the age of the Spirit by which God will work 
his work in the world through the Spirit. And so they wait, and we know that on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came like a a wind, and the apostles spoke, people heard the gospel, and on that day, over 3,000 people converted to Christianity and became what we would consider today to be Christians. Peter got up, spoke, preached, and in that time, God did an incredible work to establish not only the age of the Holy Spirit, but what we would understand is the age of the local church. And so by the time we get to the second chapter of Acts, we are full scale into the embryonic form, really the infancy form, not embryonic, but the, the infancy form of the, new, of the local church, the New Testament church of what you and I are today as Christians And so when we get to verse 42 of chapter 2, we've seen this incredible revival. I mean, they're riding a real spiritual high and we see what it is that they gave themselves to in order to be God's people in the world following Jesus. That's where we're at in verse 42. And here's what Luke records for us. And they devoted themselves and they devoted themselves. You see, Luke's insight helps us to see how it is that they honored Jesus, the one they had walked with in ministry for the last three years or so. And it shows us how it is that they valued the things that he taught and how they put into practice the principles and the truths that he had given to them. You see, devotion is the first defining characteristics of Christians in the New Testament church. And it is for us today. Devotion to Jesus forms that first defining characteristic of the Christian life. You see, what devotion is, is devotion sets something apart for a higher cause or for a higher use. It becomes a defining quality of life, but but it's not just something about us. Rather, it's a state of being that is true of us, that perseveres in specific actions to produce something through us. So, so devotion is something that is true of followers of Jesus, but it is also something that produces from us as following him. You see, life is filled with that which we are devoted to. Every part of life we give to some semblance or some measure of devotion to. And devotion shows great commitment, the discipline to do until the desired result is accomplished. You want to talk about somebody that's devoted to something. They're devoted because they persevere, they endure in whatever that activity is. And and they do so until the desired results comes about in that. Whether it's practicing a, a run on the guitar or a shot from the basketball court or whatever the case may be in drawing or craftsmanship uh, or, or whatever the trade may be. Devotion is all about love. It's all about expending your life because of the love that you have for that which you are devoted to. And Acts 2.42 tells us that they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the Lord Jesus Because they wanted to show their love for him because they understood that they had been loved by him. Here's what John tells us in 1 John chapter 4. Now, this is the same John whose gospel account we've been studying for the last several months. This is out of his letter that he's written to those early Christians who were under deep persecution 
This is written by a, uh, the disciple known as the Beloved, who tells us how it was that he was loved, that we might become the Beloved of Jesus ourselves. And here's what he tells us about his devotion. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. We love because he first loved us. Friends, devotion is our right response to love God that is motivated by God's love for us. But devotion won't let our love be simply hollow words. You see, devotion is all about love, but devotion requires a definite object. A definite object, that which you absolve yourself in to demonstrate that love. You see, you can't be loved, you can't be devoted to, rather, what you haven't identified you can't be devoted to that which you're only vaguely familiar with. That, that's what you call a Twitter conversation there. People who are so adamant and so right in response to some conversation they're having on Twitter when they really, they're just vaguely familiar with it. If they're familiar with it at all, it's really just an opinion. And, and you can't be devoted to those things you're only vaguely familiar with. But when you give yourself to something, you have to know what it is. You have to know what it is. And loving God is determined by relationship with him, which only comes through grace by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us. God never saves outside of or around and, and, and in, in absence of, in some way, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. If you'll imagine for just a moment that Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians, 5 that all things will be reconciled to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross there is no work of God that doesn't happen because of the cross there will be no work of God that ever takes place outside of the finished work of Christ on the cross and so as we consider that, we need to understand that Christian devotion centers fully on Jesus because Jesus is fully God who has come to show God's love in salvation. It's a definite object. Jesus is the one in whom our devotion is fully consumed in. But there's more about this word devotion or devoted that we need to understand because devotion not only requires a definite object, but it demands a clear decision and it depends upon a decisive action. It demands a clear decision and it depends upon a very decisive action. De devotion demands that you remove or at the very least lessen your commitment to everything else. There can be no devotion as long as distractions remain, right? I mean, think about, uh, think about your life and trying to just focus on anything. As long as whatever is present is distracting you, you're not going to be able to focus, right? And that's the same way with devotion. As long as there are things in your life that distract you from Jesus, you'll never be able to be fully devoted to him. You can't have devotion if you're deterred, if there's something that just prevents your devotion. You can't be devoted to Jesus if you are divided in your love. 
If there's anything other that may not equally compare, maybe it's 1% less. Well, Jesus, I love you 41%. I love this 39.8%. So see, no, friends, that's not devotion. That's division. You also can't be devoted if you're dead. See, the Bible tells us that there is a reality more real than you and I sitting in the room here today. And that is the eternal reality of God. And if you've never come to a point in your life where you've repented of your sin, you've turned away from self, and you've put your trust in God, you're alive here today, but the Bible says that spiritually, you're dead. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And the only way to overcome that death is for the Spirit of God to come into our hearts and our lives through repentance of our sin and regenerate us and bring us into a full relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. These are all things that deter our devotion. Every yes to God for his glory for your life will demand many no's to good things in your life. There's no question about this, friends. Until you start saying no to that which distracts you, deters you, or divides you, you will never say yes to that which deserves your devotion. Saying no is a decision of discipline. It is a decisive choice, decision that you must make. It's not just a preference. You see, so often, especially in the Christian life, we just drift along. And we have things tied to us that we've just never cut ourselves loose from. They're not only slowing us down, but they're dragging us one way or the other. They're causing us to, to, to not be able to focus on, on the path in which we should walk, but rather they're causing us to move this way and that way when God's calling us this way. And until we say no and make a decision really of discipline, we won't be able to be fully devoted because all the things of life that are tied on to us are convoluting our devotion. And when our devotion gets convoluted, our love and our loyalty gets divided. Contrary to popular decision, true love never originates in emotions or feelings. It never originates. And I'm not just making a pop psychology argument for you here. I want you to see that love is a real concrete action. And this is biblical theology, friends. This is biblical theology. Look at Romans chapter 5 verse 8 when it tells us that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't leave his devotion to us, his love for us in feelings or emotions, but he brought it to us and showed it to us in real, concrete actions. And your devotion to God can be no less. Can be no less. Devotion shows the action of our love for God. Devotion is also, though, best practiced as an initiating discipline, not a response mechanism of feelings or emotion. You see, Jesus, when he walked on the earth for, for really for those three and a half years, we know he was, he was a, in his 
early 30s when he was crucified, but the last three years or so of his life was when his public ministry was on display. And that's where we have the greatest insight into how it is that he related to God the Father. And it tells us that he enjoyed a loving fellowship with the Father. He and the Father, he said, are one. And he did that for one reason, because he knew the Father's unending, unfailing love. And he knew that unending, unfailing love because he listened in order to obey the Father. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians 2. He humbled himself and obeyed. And and Jesus said, I only listen to obey. I don't even say anything or do anything that the Father doesn't tell me to say or do. And we know that the fellowship that he enjoyed was not not because he felt something from God, but he practiced a, a discipline before God because of the fellowship that it brought into his life. And without that discipline, the fellowship would have been absent. But a full devotion, friends, cultivates a fuller experience of God's love. It doesn't mean God loves us more. God couldn't love us anymore. He's fully expended himself in Christ on the cross. But in our experience of of God's love in our life, a devotion helps us to experience God's love more fully in our daily life. You see, devotion is determined more in our day-to-day discipline of routine than in the moments of heightened experience or intense frenzy. We live in a world today that is so drunk on extreme experiences. I watched one this week that was extreme cliff diving. You don't even need to put the word extreme in front of that. If you're going to jump off of 50 feet up off of rock and wonder if the wind will blow you into the rock before you hit water that feels like concrete at that height, you don't need the word extreme. This guy dove off of a platform. Hear me. 50 meters. Anything over 50 feet, they tell us that the surface of the water is similar to concrete when the body makes contact with it. And if you enter the water at the wrong angle, it will kill you. That's why people get injured diving off of cliffs. But this is extreme cliff diving because cliff diving is just not enough. Man, I mean, we're just, we're so... Uh, uh, junkied over adrenaline today. And, and we want to transfer that and go, man, God, if it isn't extreme, it's not worth it. When, when God simply calls us to a radical faith and we go, whoa, whoa, you just went overboard, God. Right? You see, what I'm saying to you is that, that devotion is best determined more in our day-to-day rhythm with God. The quietness, the stillness, the voice speaking to the secret areas of our life where we so often don't want to be revealed. Devotion also determines perseverance, friends, perseverance to endure. You see, the good of the, uh, uh, of the object of devotion that it produces in us is always better than the pain or the discomfort or the inconvenience or the heartache of any given moment. That's why saying yes to Jesus, not knowing what's in front of him, not knowing what is to come, but saying yes in full devotion to him is always worth it. Even when it demands you say no and you have to cut away a lot of the things that are distracting you and deterring you and dividing you from following him. It's always worth it. 
Because the good he will bring to you and the glory that he will produce in you will be greater for you than anything that all of this could provide. That's what it's telling us. And and you see, the, the night before Jesus was arrested, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his sleeping disciples. It tells us he went a little further by himself and he prayed to God. Here's how he demonstrates this for us. He prayed to God, my soul is sorrowful even to death. You know what he said to the Father in that moment? He said this, God, I know what you want me to do. He knew the cross had already been dropped in the ground. It was just a matter of time before he was going to hang on it. It tells us that he prayed so intensely that sweat drops of blood came from his brow. My soul is sorrowful even to death. God, I know it's going to be painful. The discomfort's going to be unimaginable. The price of what you're calling me to will require literally everything. But here's what he said. If possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Why? Why? Well, Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him. I don't know about you, but when I think about defining joy, that's not the words I use. But Jesus had a greater joy. It was the joy of the Father's glory coming to full fruition in his life. And friends, when we live fully devoted, we live wanting to see the Father's full glory come to fruition in our life. You see, devotion determines that no matter what, I will hold fast to the one that is holding me. That's what Christian devotion is all about. Because half-hearted devotion to that which deserves full devotion is most pathetic. And let me give you just a very, a very relevant illustration that I think we'll all understand. You take a, 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 a husband and wife that are married, and you talk to them in conversation, and if one is bad-mouthing the other, what do you think? Man, their spouse must be terrible. No. What do you think? What are you doing this for? Right? It says more about the person speaking than it does the one being spoken about, right? Why? Because a half-hearted devotion to marriage is not worth it. And you will survive in it. Marriage is worthy of a full devotion. And Jesus is worthy of the same. I remember my junior high coach lamenting and bemoaning half-hearted devotion. He didn't like it at all, man. He tells, get off the field if that's all you've got to bring. And a casual participation in the Christian life is it's not just not the sign of a lack of commitment. It's a denial of God's love. It says, you know what? God's love is partially good for me. While few of us would state that, that's what our half-hearted devotion to God says. It's an absence of devotion. Half-hearted devotion to Jesus is a theological statement. It's a, it's a revelation of our theological convictions about him. It demonstrates that what God says about himself in the word, we just don't think it's true. We believe it's partially true. God is partially glorious. He is partially good. He is partially able. He is partially, he is 42% worthy of me. Right? That's what it really says when we live a divided devotion. For devotion to Jesus is either full or it is deceiving you. Hear me, it's deceiving you. It's harming you. Though you may not see it or feel it immediately, it is useless for you. 
for a Christian, half-hearted devotion to Jesus is complete idolatry. That's what it really is. Because you make Jesus something you want him to be instead of worshiping as worthy of who he says that he really is. And they devoted themselves, Luke says. Let me give you another illustration from the scriptures of this. Genesis chapter 17 verse 1 tells us, in, verse, in chapter 15, God gives his covenant promise to Abraham. And he tells him, he says, man, you're 90 years old, dude. Your wife is 80, and I'm going to make you more numerous than the stars. <laughs> says Abraham laughed, and later Sarah would laugh at the same thing. But God wasn't joking. And then the remainder of chapter 15 and chapter 16 tells us about how Abraham went out not, not doing what God told him, not believing the promise, but taking the promise and trying to make it something in his own life. And it tells us about how abysmally he failed God because he tried to do something for God instead of just submitting himself to God and let God do something in him. And God brings him back and sits him down in chapter 17 and he gives him a very brief introduction to the plan and here's what he says to him. Here's what I'm going to do, Abram. I didn't ask you to go do something for me. I told you what I was going to do in you. And here's what he says, I am God Almighty. I don't really care what comes after that. If that statement is true, it doesn't matter what comes after that. You need to pay attention to it, right? And he says this, walk before me and be devoted. Be devoted. Some translations say walk blamelessly. It's the essence of what it means when it says they devoted themselves to God. Stop and ask yourself for a minute. Are you living devoted to Jesus? Are you living devoted to Jesus? Look at your calendar. Look at your schedule. Again, you know, so often we want to make spiritual application and we want to keep it in the nebulous of life. You know, let me just talk about, oh yeah, now let's go back to life, you know. Let's get out of church and go live, right? That, that's the problem. We get out of church and we go live instead of living as the church wherever we go. Look at your calendar and look at your schedule. Check your bank ledger. Evaluate the GPS record of your car, where you've been, whom you've been with, what you've been doing. Monitor the reoccurring thought patterns that you regular, regularly encounter. Monitor what your heart keeps looking at and saying to. I don't care what it takes. Get it. You know? These are the things that measure our devotion. These are the things that tell us where our full devotion lies. New Testament Christians devoted themselves to Jesus because they loved him. Whatever holds your devotion holds you. Whatever holds your devotion is that which is holding you. Now, if we understand devotion, that it requires a definite object and it depends on a decisive action and a, a, a very decisive decision, then let's be clear about our object and our actions. What should they be? And that's what Luke lays out for us in the remainder of this verse. And they devoted themselves. Well, let's devote ourselves and then walk away. What did we devote ourselves to? We just devoted ourselves. You can't do that. That's not devotion. Devotion as a specific object. And here are the practices that they devoted themselves to. He says this, to the apostolic teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, 
and to the prayers. I drew a blank there for just a moment. These are the four practices. I want to look at these very briefly, but I want to talk about them so that you can center your devotion and understand why it was. Because when they said they devoted themselves to Jesus, there were four basic practices that they involved themselves in. The first one was the apostolic teaching. Now, let me just, for the sake of time, let me simplify this and simply say this. The apostolic teaching for us today is the Bible. Okay? The apostles taught the Old Testament. They taught it as Jesus taught them to, that all the scriptures were fulfilled completely in him. John 5, 39, Luke 24, 44 teaches us this Jesus-centered, gospel-centered understanding of all of the scriptures. And they taught them as the Holy Spirit was inspiring them to write the New Testament. So we have two testaments that make up our whole biblical canon. And for us to understand what they devoted themselves would be for us to understand that our devotion should be to the Bible. Christians devote themselves to God's word, the Bible, in order to center our lives on Jesus. You cannot center your life on Jesus. You cannot live in a relationship, as we talk about with Jesus, with the Bible absent. It's not possible. So I want to ask you this question simply of application in order to make a specific object of voting yourself to Jesus and have a decisive plan or action. Do you have a plan to read God's word this year? I don't really care how much of it or what. I'm not asking you that. I'm just saying, do you have a plan? Has it come to the point where you understand that if you're going to devote yourself to Jesus, you've got to devote yourself to taking in his word? You've got to be in the word, friends, until the word gets in you. You know, I'll just say this. If you simply show up to gathered worship on Sunday and community group throughout the week and serving with our people, I'll promise you this. You'll get at least two to three periods of the word of God in your life every week. Just by showing up. Why? Because every week we're going to preach from God's word here and every week community groups are going to unpack the word in your life. It's just a discipline. It's a devotion. The second practice that they devoted themselves to was the fellowship. Do you know what fellowship is? Let me just put it in real simple terms for you. It's the best part of church. It really is. That's what koinonia is all about. It's the part of church that you don't get in any other quote-unquote community that you may be a part of. And it is most what you want out of church for sure. It's the intimate association. Here's kind of a formal definition that's not really formal. Uh, It's the intimate association through an act of mutual sharing of life by participation. If you don't participate, you can't share. So fellowship is the means through which God ministers the power of the gospel by the Holy Spirit through every member that each one might grow and mature and have their needs met through the church. You see, Christians devote themselves to the fellowship of the local church for God to work through them in the gospel's power for the life of all. We call that together. That's everything I just said there is we use one word together. And that's why it's so important. The third practice is this. They're devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread really focuses our fellowship, and more likely this has a dual meaning. It means in the New Testament, we see that when they shared this meal that we now call the Lord's Supper, it was really more of a full meal than what we do in our representative uh, symbolism of it. 
And so it very likely entertains uh, Christians gathering to sit down at a table and enjoy a meal. But it also includes how we represent and how we celebrate the Lord's Supper through the official uh, symbolism that we take in it. And you see, participation with other Christ followers in remembering the work of Christ in life and in building that relationship that encourages us and builds us up to live as he has called us to live, that's the essence of Christian community. It begins at the breaking of our bread, both in the provision and thanking God for the provision that he brings to us in all of life, but also for the salvation that he's brought to us. That's what the breaking of bread is all about. The fourth practice was the prayers. You see, prayer is not just an accessory for the Christian life. It's the principal work of gospel mission in your life. Prayer is not something we tack on at the end or to the sides. It's where we enter in to all that God wants to do in his kingdom. Jesus prayed regularly to the Father. He prayed regularly to, or with his followers. His followers prayed regularly. And they demonstrate for us that prayer is critical for the life of the church. And so what he says, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Christians devote themselves to the prayers in order to center the conversation of the church and the heart of every person in the church on the Lord Jesus Christ. That we as one and that we each one might have our hearts molded and shaped into his image to do what he wants to do, not only in us, but through us, one and all. These are the four practices that are vital in order for the church and every Christian to center their life on Jesus. It's not multiple choice, it's a choose all because they all apply. They all apply. And let me just say one other note of importance on these four practices. Each one begins with a very common word, but a common word that's important to us now. It's the definite article, the. The. The apostles' teaching. The fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. You see, it's not left to individual interpretation. There's a very specific teaching. There's a very specific breaking of bread and fellowship and prayers that they devoted themselves to. That's why we talk about today that our teaching should be Jesus-centered. Our fellowship should be Jesus-centered, not social-centered. Our breaking of bread should be Jesus-centered, not just me engulfing. Our, our, our prayers should be Jesus-centered, not just let me dump on Jesus what's heavy on me so I can get it off of me and let him worry about it and not listen to him. No, no, what we do in all of these practices is we bring Jesus to the center of our life because he is the one we are fully devoted to. He is the one that we want to singularly focus our life upon in all things. And devotion to the Lord begins in personal spiritual disciplines. Disciplines and participation in the church body as a faithful and biblical response for Christ's followers. Why? Because he's loved us. There's one warning. There are times in your life, there are no doubt, that you sense your relationship with the Lord is waning. It's weak, God. I don't, I don't feel your presence as much as I do at other, have at other times. I don't feel as, 
as enriched by the word when I read it. And so these are very common problems, friends. I mean, all Christians go through these seasons and sometimes they're elongated seasons when we don't sense that the presence of God is with us as much. We don't sense that the reading of his word is as powerful to us. We don't sense that our prayers are able to get as high as they ought to get or whatever the case may be. These are all common problems. But let me tell you the biggest mistake Christians make is we make all of these adjustments to stage two and we never change anything about stage one. We start packing on the activity and we don't make any adjustments to the devotion. It doesn't matter how high your rituals stack. If your devotion is deterred, distracted, or divided, Moving the heavens and the earth, which you will not do, but you will try to get to God, will never work. Let me give you one final verse. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Remember I talked about you got to say no to a lot of good things if you're going to say yes to the one that's worthy. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I want you to hold that phrase for just a moment. Our devotion means that we're going to run with endurance the race that is set before us, that God puts before us. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him did what? Say it with me. Endured the cross. Where does our endurance come from, friends? He's already endured the cross for us. Where does our devotion come from? Where is the motivation for our devotion? It's hanging on both walls. The love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, who endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Friend, you will never be satisfied with God until he alone holds all your devotion. Let's pray.